Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Greetings, podcast listeners, and welcome to another episode on the Old Testament and how to relate to the Old Testament as a Christian. Now, if you remember, uh, back on the 18th of June, we addressed the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament in brief. Specifically, we talked about how some claim the New Testament should have priority over the Old Testament, and some have even said that the Old Testament should be unhitched from the Christian's arsenal. It shouldn't even be considered. And this actually is a big deal to me because in my dissertation, part of what I wrote on was whether or not Leviticus should be applicable to the church today. And obviously there are some scholars who believe that Leviticus should not be a main part of the argument and that we should only consider ethical issues from the New Testament. That's obviously a very common idea, and I think it's very prevalent in the church to rely on the New Testament. However, last episode, we wanted to make sure that we were reminded that the Old Testament was still important, and so we covered a variety of questions. I mean, the the underlying focus was, should we treat the words of Jesus differently than the rest of Scripture? Should we treat the New Testament different than the Old Testament? And the underlying premise that I wanted to get across was that all Scripture is equally inspired by God. Obviously, 2 Timothy 3.16 is very clear. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's very clear. Now, we also covered... Uh, in detail that the scripture writers assumed their words hold the same authority as Jesus. Now, we looked at this from the New Testament apostolic perspective, looking at it from the words of Peter as well as John. However, we didn't talk too much about how the Old Testament authors compared themselves to Jesus, mainly because that would be very anachronistic, meaning that the Old Testament authors can't compare themselves to Jesus because Jesus hasn't lived yet. However, we can do a simple test as is based on Deuteronomy 18 and Deuteronomy 18, 18 to 22 is very clear that when prophets speak or write for God, it is God claiming to put his words in their mouths. So prophets don't speak of their own accord when they're recording their prophecy as scripture. They are claiming to speak for God, and God says if they are truly speaking for him, what they say is going to come pass, and it should be treated as if it comes from him because it does. Now, that's a very important underlying presupposition because everything that we read in Scripture is from God, both in the Old and in the New Testaments. And that's a, I think... Most people would agree with that point, but it's an important starting point because we need to be aware that, you know, the red letters of the New Testament don't have a special power over the Old Testament or anything like that. In fact, the only reason we have red letters in the New Testament is because some Bible printer decided to make some words red with the ink, right? I mean, obviously that did not exist when the New Testament was written down. So we want to make sure that the Bible is treated authoritatively, and I think that 
for the most part, people will agree with that. If they don't, there's probably some liberal presupposition behind that. Now, a question came in from a listener, and I wanted to address this uh, because it prompted it prompted this response and question. Uh, and the listener says, although I agree completely on a practical level, I'm just not sure what to do with things like the old covenant of sacrifices and laws such as eating unclean animals. Some could argue these things we don't have to follow anymore because we have Jesus. But then many things in the Old Testament implied there, although it's not stated explicitly, we do adhere to. So how do we work through this? I don't quite get it. Now, this is a very common question, really important to work through. So I kind of want to go through two general points that I think are going to clear the water a little bit and help us understand how we should view the Old Testament and New Testament as they relate together. So the first main point in understanding this question before we get into the specifics would be that, as we've noted, the Old Testament and New Testament are equally inspired, but they are not the same part of the story. So I want to say that one more time. The Old Testament and New Testament are equal in their inspiration, but that doesn't mean that they're equal in their part in the story. So what do I mean by that? So scripture is a story spanning from Genesis to Revelation. It talks about God's redemption of humanity. That's very clear. But when we look at how that plays out in scripture, we should be very adamant about the fact that there are different sequences or ways in which God works with humanity. For example, the way God works with Adam and Eve is different than the way God works with Noah. And that's different than the way God works with Abraham. And that's different than the way that God works with Moses. And that's different than the way that God works with David. And if we jump to the New Testament, that's different than the way that God works with John the Baptist, works with Peter, works with James, works with John. And then gets to us and it's different how God works with us. So it's all part of the same story, but that story is taking place over a extensive period of time. And there is different parts to that story where God works differently. So what we want to be very adamant about is a concept called progressive revelation. That's just the belief that God doesn't reveal everything at once, but that he progressively reveals himself and his plan throughout history. Now, this is very clear. Even in Ephesians 3, Paul writes uh, in verses 8 and 9, he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. Now, that statement, uh, the mystery hidden for the ages, talks about how God had designed, planned something which was not revealed formerly and now has been made evident. That's the idea of mystery there. So Paul is very clearly talking about a new segment of God's plan that it that was hidden and now has been revealed the proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles which has launched this church age. So that's an example of where we can see very clearly a different distinction in God's plan. The old school word which has been used by many is dispensation and that's why I think dispensationalism as a system of theology is attractive because all that 
dispensationalism at its core, or what it claims to be, teaches, is that God works differently in different epochs or times of history, and there's a distinction between how God works with the church and a distinction between how God works with Israel. That doesn't mean they're mutually exclusive, but it means that God has different uh, ways in which he works. And one of those ways in which he works is the law. And that's uh, evident by the fact that the, the question that was raised is, what are we supposed to do with the law? Because it seems that it doesn't have the same authority as what it did have in the Old Testament. And that's very perceptive and absolutely correct. Because we live in this new age, the church age, uh, we understand that part of living under the new covenant era, the distinction there, when Christ dies, he inaugurates the new covenant. And when he inaugurates that new covenant, the old covenant the Mosaic Covenant, the Sinaitic Covenant, they, they're referred to by both uh, both ways there. That passes away. Hebrews 8.13 says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Uh, Paul says similar things, depending on if you think Paul wrote Hebrews or not. Paul says in Romans 6.14, Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. And so there he's making a very fine distinction uh, that we as believers, those who are in the church, are not under law, but are under grace. So that's a distinction made between the prior generations that were under the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, later on in Romans in 13.10, Paul says that instead of checking off the boxes of the law, love is the fulfillment of the law. And so the underlying value of the church is to be practicing love so that the law will be observed correctly. And we'll talk more about that at a future time. But all that to say is that the New Testament seems to be very clear that the law has passed away and that we are under grace and not under law. Now, some have tried to deal with this issue in a variety of ways. The most common historically uh, since the Reformation, has been to divide the law into three separate categories. You could have the law, the moral laws, which would be things like murder, stealing, etc. You could have civil laws, which would be governmental regulation. Uh, that would include cities of refuge, land boundaries, etc. And then you could have ceremonial laws, which would include sacrifices and offerings. So those three categories of laws people have used as descriptors of the different kinds of law. And what they will say is that the moral law is the only law that's binding upon us as Christians and the civil and ceremonial laws have done away with as per the New Testament. However, the problem with that is, is that the New Testament and Old Testament, obviously, but, but both Testaments treat the law as a whole. In fact, James says that if you break one part of the law, you break it all and you're guilty of it all. And so nowhere can you find a distinction made into moral, civil, ceremonial. Plus, you have laws which are treated as moral, meaning that if you disobey against them uh, in the Old Testament, you are put to death. However, they are considered civil uh, laws like the Sabbath. Uh, because clearly that's uh, related to Israel and their land. And in the New Testament, we are very clearly told that we don't have to keep Saturday as a special day. However, 
the Old Testament Israelite, if he didn't treat that as a very serious matter, he would have been put to death. So that is a problem to try to draw those distinctions. We'll talk more about those those views of the law in a future episode, I think. But although some have tried to to make these distinctions, in reality, I think the best way to view the law is that the entire law in its entirety has passed away and is no longer binding upon the believer. Now, somebody might hear that and say, that sounds exactly what you were arguing against earlier when you said that we ought to keep the Old Testament as usefulness, but here you're saying that the Old Testament is completely done away with, the law is is no longer binding. Well, here's the key distinction. What I'm saying is not that the Old Testament ceases to be helpful or uh, providing guidance through revelation. What I'm only saying is that we don't have to bring the lamb to the altar. We don't have to observe the laws in their entirety. However, they remain in their didactic purpose, which we'll talk about more in a second. Others which I argue strenuously against, and hopefully you are convinced of that, they would say that the Old Testament ceases to be useful at all. Essentially, when you're thinking of moral issues, you don't consult the Old Testament because that's done away with. You consult the New Testament. What I would say is the Old Testament continues to provide that revelation, that guidance. However, that doesn't mean that we have to follow the letter of the law. Uh, We are still guided by the spirit of the law to use Paul's terminology himself. So that's the first main point. The first main point is that we can recognize that there's a distinction in where we are in the story. We look back on the Old Testament from the New Covenant. We are part of the New Covenant era. And so we can look on the Old Covenant era with a distinction that is biblical, understanding we're not bound by the letter of the law. However, here's the second point, which is equally important and really essential, and this is where we can talk about the specifics a little bit too, is that although the law is no longer binding upon believers, the law remains useful as a teacher. And that's so important. The law as a teacher remains eminently useful. Now, the law teaches a lot of things. I think we could talk a lot about what the law demonstrates and shows us, but I I just want to bring three primary elements, which I think you can group most of the law's intention under, and and that's that the law teaches one about the character of God, and that's essential because you... When, when you're reading the narrative of scripture, you learn about God, but you can only learn certain things about God through the narrative that are, are really missed unless there's an element of law given. For example, the holiness of God is appreciated through the narrative, but it's really stressed in the law. For example, if you don't see the regulations which are demanded by the holiness of God, then when in the narrative it says God's holy, it means a little less than when you're confronted with everything that your life has to look like because of the law. So the character of God is definitely on full display in the law. And there's there's an essentialness about the law to, to reflect that character. The second thing would be that the sinfulness of man 
is inherently displayed in laws. And part of that is just because the law assumes man will sin. And therefore, you have sacrifice, you have even assumptions that man is going to uh, kill other people. So when man kills other people, this is what you do. The law assumes that man is going to do wicked deeds, which, if you think about it, is kind of an interesting assumption. And obviously, the law understands and knows that the sinfulness of man is a is a important issue. So therefore, the law does deal with the sinfulness of man and teaches the ubiquitous nature of man's sinfulness. He, he really deals, he's not just kind of a sinner, he is totally and completely a sinner. And how are we to deal with that? And the law, inherent in the law, is the element that God's grace is is really the only solution to the sinfulness of man. So those are the first two. The third one, which I think is really undervalued a lot, is that God has a specific design for creation. And and I think that's reflected in the law a lot, but I don't think people have really touched on that as much as they ought to. And I think in a future episode, we'll, we'll talk more about how God's design for creation is inherent in the laws. But just off the top of my head, the way that you see this most clearly is in the regulation in the law for family and sexuality. Because if God is the creator, well, I mean, it also shows up in the law as God's claim to being the exclusive sovereign and deity. In other words, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, the only reason that's in the law is because God is the creator. And if God is the creator, then the assumption is that he's the one, he's the only one who deserves the worship of his creation. I mean, just from a very logical standpoint, that makes sense. But then you also have vocabulary links between Genesis 1 and Exodus 20 when you have the first commandment, which which show that that's the case as well. So that's obviously a primary example. But then you also have issues of sexuality. Why is it that you cannot have uh, homosexual relationships, for example, in Old Testament law. A man shall not lie with, with another man as with a woman. Well, why is that? That's because in Genesis 2, God has designed the family, the marriage relationship in particular, to be one man and one woman for the entirety of their life. And it's going to, it's to be an exclusive relationship. And that is, how they are to operate the family unit. The children are to be subservient under that. Therefore, the children ought not to speak against their parents. Uh, And so you have laws dealing with all that. All of these laws are meant to reflect God's creation design. And so when Israel obeys those laws, these watching nations are supposed to look at Israel and say, wow, and this comes from Deuteronomy 4, what a wise nation they are. They are very wise, and the reason they're wise is because they're living the way God designed creation to live. They are modeling that. They are emulating that, and therefore we should do that as well. Now, those three elements, the character of God, sinfulness of man, and God's design for creation are inherent in the laws. And so just because the law is no longer binding doesn't mean the law can't instruct us in those areas. So I think on a practical level, just because abortion is always on people's minds, uh, you just think about what the law, does the law have anything that would teach us about the sanctity of human life? Well, in Exodus 21, 
22 through 25, you see a law that deals with, with a pregnant woman who gets struck when two men are, are fighting together and her child comes out prematurely. Now, some people have argued that this, this occurrence would be a, a miscarriage. And I think some translations actually translate it as miscarriage, but the most likely meaning of this isn't a miscarriage, but just a premature birth. And the law stipulates that if there's no harm in the, in the premature birth, whether for the mom or for the child, then there's simply a fine, uh, as whatever justly should be imposed upon the, the person who struck her. However, if there is harm either to the woman or to the child, then in verses 23 through 25, it says, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. In other words, your, uh, your in- injustice, your violent crime, as it were, should be justly recompensed. So if you cause the death of the child, you know, you, according to Old Testament law, that is, that is a, uh, egregious penalty. If you uh, cause the maiming of a child, you know, you need to recompense that monetarily. Uh, it's all, all sorts of that. So just because we don't observe that law in its literal form, we can still draw the conclusion that it's very clear from, from the scriptures that, that God considers a unborn child to be valuable, to be a, a life. And I think that there is a lot of value in just thinking through that in an example like that. And so you could do that with all these laws. And, and in, in a episode, which we'll do soon, Lord willing, I'll, I'll go through the principles on how to, how to draw out, uh, application from Old Testament law. And I think that will be helpful. But let's consider the two specific examples that were raised earlier in the question, and that's specifically the sacrifices and eating unclean animals. So with the sacrifices themselves, there's actually a lot that can be gleaned from that. Now, again, I'm not arguing that we actually perform the sacrifices, but we can glean a lot from understanding what the sacrifices entail. Now, it would be wrong to, you know, this will have to be another episode, right? Because I can't go through all the sacrifices, but there is more than just one sacrifice. Uh, there are diff- multiple different sacrifices that you can do different combinations of sacrifice, sacrificial items or offerings and at different times. So when you do the offering, why you do it, what, uh, what you're actually offering or sacrificing, all those play into what you can learn from those sacrifices. Uh, you also have the whole concept of atonement to think about and how that plays into all these things can contribute to our understanding of God and our own sinfulness and what's required. So we, we understand better God's holiness when we understand that sin requires a death penalty. I mean, that's obviously important, but inherent in sacrifices and offerings as well is an important thread of devotion. Uh, like the burnt offering, for example, one of the, one of the points or meanings behind the burnt offering is a complete devotion or commitment to God. In fact, you don't need to have sinned to offer a burnt offering. That's important. And so 
People will offer the burnt offering in a sense as a symbol saying, I'm completely devoted to you, God. I'm burned up for you, in other words. And so there is an element there where where our own sacrifice or devotion to God can be costly. I mean, for us, a lot of times we just uh, say, oh, yeah, I'll serve the Lord, but it's not it just isn't going to cost me anything. Well, that doesn't mean much. I mean, in the Old Testament, they say, I'm going to serve the Lord and I'm giving you my best right now to show you I'm serious for this. You know, we we get so lazy in our devotion to God that, you know, we say, oh, I'll serve you. And then whatever, we just don't do anything. But there should be some devotion and sacrifice, some cost in our lives when we when we pursue the Lord and seek to serve him. And and I think we just lose out on that picture because, you know, we don't have lambs and bulls to sacrifice and things like that. So, well, so even though we don't have to do that, though, we can learn some of these things about the seriousness of that seriousness of our sin and God's holiness, obviously, but then just the seriousness of following God and the attitude that we should portray in that. The second part of the question about eating unclean animals is a a great issue to think about because a big part of the laws regarding the diet of the Israelites was at least partially to keep separation from the Gentiles, from the other nations, not as as in like associating, but as in having this deep fellowship with the Gentiles. In other words, uh, when the Gentiles have a certain diet and they invite you over as a neighbor saying, hey, come on over and eat with us, but you can't eat anything that they are going to have at their table. Well, you know, you can't accept that invitation. It's kind of like whenever I invite somebody over who's gluten-free and they say, oh, sorry, I can't have pizza or whatever, so I'm not going to come over, you know, something like that. And when you have a different diet, it's really hard to have that deep fellowship and association with somebody. And so what that did, it wasn't as if God was trying to teach the Israelites to hate the Gentiles, but what he was doing was he was trying to communicate to Israel that as his representative, Israel needs to represent God, uh, in a special way, in a unique way. They can't just just meld into the culture, as it were. Uh, to put it in a vernacular, the, the food they ate, or if we put it in our terms, the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the lifestyle that we, that we live needs to communicate who our ultimate authority and Lord is. In other words, uh, the way that Israel represented God, every aspect of their life communicated the fact that he was their Lord and he was their sovereign. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have to eat or we can't eat lobster or anything like that. But what that does mean is there should be a conscious element in our lives saying, should I do this? Because does this adequately represent my allegiance to the Lord? Will people be confused? Will people understand that I'm I'm a follower of the Lord in doing this? I think that that's a very important lesson that we can learn from a variety of laws, but that comes out even in eating, uh, refusing to eat unclean animals. And so, even though these these laws we don't we don't keep them on our bed stand and read them and follow them meticulously, they can teach us things. And the law remains, the the law's core component remains as a teacher 
to us about these elements. And remember, those three elements that really come out would be the character of God, the sinfulness of man, and God's design for creation. And those those three things are always coming out in these laws and how how they look in the Old Testament might be a little different than how they would look in the New Testament. Uh, For example, I'll just give one more example. Uh, In Deuteronomy, you have the law uh, to build a fence around the roof of your house because oftentimes they would live on the roof of their house or they would use it as living space. But if somebody fell off the roof, I mean, they could be seriously injured or possibly die. And so the law stipulated that they should build a fence around their roof. Now, the reason for that is because the Israelites were to value life and preserve it. For us, I don't think many of us live on our roofs because our roofs are often slanted. And uh, I think my house back in Minnesota was slanted at like a 70 degree angle or something like that. It would be, it's scary when you're walking on that. So you... You can't live on those. It's not flat. It's angled because we experience more rainfall. But we could apply that law in in many other ways, right? We could we could construct a fence around our pool so that little kids don't wander by and fall in and drown. We can still have that same mindset. And that's what the law is intended to do is to teach us to think the thoughts of God and to to think correctly. It it trains us and instructs us in righteousness that way. So in a future episode, I'll have to talk more in detail about how we can apply the law and read it practically, but those are the general principles. And I'm thankful for the question. I think that it's a good follow-up. And obviously, uh, if you have any questions in regard to this episode or comments, feel free to email me at peter at peteryeaman.com. If you want more information on the podcast or about me, go ahead and visit peteryeaman.com. For more information on Shepherd's Seminary, visit shepherds.edu. Until next time, we'll see you later.